Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. No matter how long we've followed Jesus or how spiritually mature we are, there's always something we can work on and improve to become more like Jesus. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page and the sermon Causal Change. My name is Steve Page. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and it is my honor to bring the Word of God to you. But before I speak about it, I want to speak it. Uh, as it's read in Mark 9, starting in verse 38, and it goes like this. The Apostle John said to him, meaning Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him. For no one who does the deed of my power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. And if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, meaning one of his disciples, followers, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, nice easy words by Jesus today, yeah? You know, as I read that passage, one of the repeated words that jumped out uh, at me is the word uh, whatever causes. The word causes, causes you to do this. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to, to stumble, tear it out. And I realized that Jesus wasn't just talking about getting rid of sin. He was talking about getting rid of the things that cause you to sin as well. And it started to remind me of, uh, of some studies I did uh, a while, while back when I first started learning about addictions. And I first heard the term dry drunk, dry drunk. At first, I'm like, dry drunk, that seems like a contradiction in terms until I understood its more clinical meaning. The dry drunk syndrome was originally coined by Alcoholics Anonymous. And it described someone who had stopped drinking, yet... Yet their lives, in their lives, they, there was a continued presence, there was, there was the continued actions and attitudes and emotional struggles that characterized them prior to their recovery. It was still with them, these kinds of things. In other words, the drinking stopped, but they still maintained very strained relationships with other people, still harbored deep resentment and bitterness and anger, and still carried around a, a, a deep sense of inadequacy and shame. And those around them still felt like they had to walk on eggshells. Simply put, 
They came to control their extreme behavior, but they never lived, they never lived deep and into the thoroughly transformed life. In other words, in other words, they never really got at the causes that fed the addiction. Now, of course, ceasing to drink is a very, very good uh, outcome to one situation, but we've got to understand that, 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 the, that, that the most potent change is not simply behavioral change, but it is the core change, the character change, the causal change. Now, Christians can sometimes, we can, we can be like that dry drunk when it comes to sin. We aim at stopping the more extreme acts, but we fail to become different people in the process, which includes getting to the causes of our sinful actions. And as a result, the journey of our lives with Christ in regards to sin, is, it's up and down, it's full of fits and starts, it has these unsuccessful strivings and, and frequent frustrations along the way. Look, here's the thing. Like AA, God is not simply shooting for behavioral modification, however helpful that might be. But he's interested in transforming you into a whole new person. Writer C.S. Lewis put it this way. God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men or women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. You see, folks, when we simply seek to be better horses, we are completely missing the point of our journey with Jesus. And this is what I want to drill down on, on today. As we, reflect on what, as we reflect on these seemingly wild statements, you know, they're made by Jesus in Mark 9. You know, and, and again, it's not only about sin, but about the causes to our sin. How do we, in fact, become new people, new creatures, okay, who deal with things that cause sin? Now, here's something that's really important as we take this journey together today about these kinds of things. I want you to keep two thoughts in mind at the same time, always running around in the back of your head. One is this, God loves me where I'm at. God loves me where I'm at. And he loves me too much to let me stay that way. He loves me too much to stay that way. Hold those two things in tension. Hold those two things in your heart and mind as we go along here or else we're going to miss a great deal. All right, so let's dive into that passage and say right off the bat that some of what Jesus says sounds a bit way over the top, okay? Think of the verbiage back there in verse 42 and 47, filled with all kinds of wild statements like putting huge millstones around your neck and throwing you into the river. That sounds like some wise guys I knew back in Jersey. Hey, I'm going to make you a nice tie, you know what I mean? And you're going to go sleep with the fish. Um, and then you got all this cutting off the hands and cutting off the feet and tearing out eyes, not to mention all those references to hell and unquenchable fire and worms that never die and holy cow. What happened to, you know, love your enemy, Jesus? What happened to bless those who hate you, Jesus? What happened to the welcome sinners and tax collectors, Jesus? Where's that guy? You know, I'm not sure that Jesus talks this much about hell all at once in any other section of the gospel. So what in the world is going on here? Why such strong, hyperbolic language about sin and the causes to sin? And by the way, what's interesting, and if you notice this, as we read that, 
But Jesus is saying all those hard things to his disciples. He's not saying these, these, these strong words to some raging pagans, but the people who are actually following him. And I think the hyperbole here is, is, to, is for Jesus to emphatically declare that sin is a serious issue and we cannot be dilettantes in contending with it. You want to see an addict never recover? Have them dabble at recovery. Now, understand this provocative statements, these provocative statements made by Jesus. We need to, we need to nest them, these serious admonitions, in the larger context of Jesus' message and mission in the Gospel of Mark. Throughout this Gospel, Jesus is teaching the people about life in the kingdom of God and how through him the kingdom of God penetrates and permeates this world. And he shows them that when the kingdom of God comes through him, the sick get healed, the marginalized get embraced, enemies get loved, and sinners find forgiveness and grace and mercy and redemption, and the world actually changes. In other words, he offers a, a, a breathtaking display of how life is meant to be. That was what he was displaying before the people of Israel back then, and it is the kind of world that Jesus is working on to recreate right now in this moment, even as we sit here. And here's the important thing about this jaw-dropping mission. It was going to be handed off, not long after these sayings, by the way, to his disciples, the very people who are hearing these very strong admonitions. Now consider this for a minute. Consider, consider, how does his kingdom outcomes arise if his followers are dilettantes and pursuing uh, uh, a new and, and different life, pursuing to become new and different people? How can God's best for human flourishing arise if the people of God do not take sin seriously, very seriously? Jesus' strong words remind me uh, of a statement made by 17th century theologian John Owen when he said this. One of the great duties of a Christian is this. Be killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. I know it sounds a bit blunt, but think about how true that statement is. Think of all the death, all the killing that happens in our lives when we don't kill our sin. Think of all the death that happens in our very important relationships, our most important relationships. Think of the, the, the death to our joy, the death to our peace in our souls because we don't kill our sin. Think of the, the death to our part and the, the role we play in, in God's transformation of humanity, the death of that because we don't take sin seriously. Now, if that sounds too broad and idealistic, let me just speak of one sin and you can see what I mean. Just one sin, the sin of contempt since that seems to be so prevalent these days. Think about it. what would happen in our workplace if we killed that sin, if we killed contempt in the workplace? What would happen in our marriages? What would happen in our, in, in our family relationships if we killed that sin of contempt? What would happen societally if every person who called themselves a Christian in this nation killed contempt in their speech, in their emails? in their tweets, in the videos they forward about political people or political parties. Can you imagine the change that would happen from killing that one sin? You see, folks, 
It is likely that Jesus' words are so strong, not simply because if we don't do this, God's not going to like us, but because there is so much at stake if we don't heed these words. And the disciples, at this point, they were talking and acting like they just weren't getting it. See, prior to these verses, they were arguing with each other of who is the greatest among them, even as Jesus talked about his own sacrifice and death. And as we read in verse 38, they actually tried to stop a guy who's doing powerful and merciful work towards others, getting rid of demons, and he was doing it in Christ's name, but these disciples tried to stop him. Why? Because he's not one of us. Not one. Now, he, they didn't think, oh, he's not one of Jesus. He's not one of us. Now, not only were they becoming arrogant, but they were becoming exclusionary. And get this, they could not see kingdom of God work when it was happening right in front of them. In fact, they tried to stop it. And since so much is at stake, can Jesus really afford to be any less than urgent towards his disciples about these issues? You see, Jesus didn't call us to him simply for the purpose of trying not to sin too much before we die. He has called us to infuse this world with the kingdom of God while we live. Every week we pray that prayer like we did a few moments ago. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In dealing urgently with our sin is part of how that prayer gets answered. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that a true Christian hits it out of the park every time in all things. That's crazy. Jesus has plenty of grace. He gives grace for our imperfections. Like I said before, he continues to love us where we are at. But grace does not amount to taking your foot off the godliness pedal of becoming like Jesus. As one theologian put it, the only help that we can expect from the Lord is help in becoming like him. We may want something less, but the Lord is committed to nothing else. And because of that commitment, Jesus does not mince words about sin. Now let me be clear. This is not a call into moral rigidity. This is a call up into godly character. In fact, it may help to work through the question, what is the difference between moral rigidity and godly character? Because I think a lot of folks, not only outside the church, but inside the church, sometimes can't tell the difference between the two. Well, I like to say it's, the, it's like the difference between a person who says, I can't, and a person who says, I don't. You see, there was a, a study uh, a few years back. It was an experiment on temptation. It wasn't even done by Christians. It was non-Christians who did this study on temptation. And people were tempted with different things, like chocolate cake, you know, really sweet, super tasty cookies, you know, these kinds of things. Now, as they went through this experiment, some to, seemed to resist with ease, and others just caved in so quickly. So they went to interview these people to find out what was going on. And as they interviewed these folks, here's what they found. They found that the people who had success against temptations were the ones who saw the tempting items and said, I don't eat that. I don't eat that. And the ones who struggled were the ones who said, oh, I, I can't eat that. Can you hear the difference between I can't and I don't? I can't says, you know, it's, in me to, it's still in me to do so. In fact, I still want to eat that. But the rules, you know, the doctors, my wife, my husband says I can't. 
So I can't. The I don't person is something different. I don't says, look, I'm not that kind of person who eats such things because I value health. You see, I don't conveys an inner disposition, an inner motivation, an inner resolve to do the right thing. For them, eating cake isn't just against the rules. It's against their values. And this is akin to being a godly Christian. It's not about, I can't lie, I can't cheat, I can't lust because it's against the rules. But I'm, but I'm the kind of person in my character that doesn't need to lie, that doesn't need to cheat, that doesn't need to lust because I value the truth, I value integrity, I value the opposite sex the way Jesus does. Can you hear the difference now between an I can't and an I don't? The dry drunk says, I can't do that. The godly Christian says, I don't value that. Dallas Willard, Christian philosopher, writer, sums this up nicely and he says this. To the person who is not inwardly transformed in each essential dimension, evil and sin still look good like that big piece of chocolate cake. They are strongly attractive. But as Jesus trains them, all of that begins to reverse. At the point, it is the sin that starts to look stupid and ridiculous as well as repulsive, which it really is. The illusion that sin is, is really a good thing, arbitrarily prohibited by God. That's what a lot of non-Christians think. These are arbitrary rules. That they're arbitrarily prohibited by God is dispelled, and we see with gratitude that his prohibitions are amongst his greatest kindnesses. His greatest kindnesses. So he, he establishes his prohibitions, okay, uh, not to have rigid rules, but out of wisdom, out of kindness towards us to live differently. So how? So how can we live into this kind of life without having to, like, you know, uh, put on a saffron robe and move to a monastery? Well, I'm going to just mention a couple of things, a lot of things you can do. I'm going to mention two things, training and community. Training and community. When talking about becoming more godly, I love how the Apostle Paul sometimes uses very athletic terms in the process. You know, my undergrad degree was in sports medicine. So when I see these kind of like, you know, athletic things in the scriptures, I, I, I focus in on them. Now, in, in, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul is talking to his protege, his disciple Timothy, on what it takes to live a godly life. And he says these words. In verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and all wise tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. For to this end, to that end of becoming godly, we toil, we struggle, because we have set our hope, we have set on living God, on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. See, the word train here means to, to control oneself through discipline. Uh, it means to do something with very rigorous effort. The Greek word here is gymnasia, where we get the word gymnasium. Okay, that's how athletic a term it is. So why? Why, 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 rigorous, why is rigorous effort and, and training necessary for godliness? Well, there's lots and lots of reasons. Let me just mention a couple of them. First of all this, I don't know if you realize this, but when you gave your life to Christ, that didn't mean now suddenly you got a lobotomy or have amnesia. History and memory and coping mechanisms of the past is not necessarily washed away with the blood of Christ. Now, the condemnation and the curse of sin, okay, that is indeed broken when you give your life to Christ, but not necessarily sin's habit. 
Sometimes we bring with us into the kingdom of God all kinds of things. We bring with us the pain of our past and unhealthy coping mechanisms. We bring with us scars from abuse or neglect or poverty. We bring with us anger and hostility, anxiety and depression, as well as low self-worth and poor boundaries with others. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone bring some of that baggage into the kingdom when you came there? I know I have. We got some few hands back there. The rest of you guys are saints. Maybe you should be up here giving this. I don't know. Look, we're freed from a lot of things when we come to Christ. I sure was. My life radically changed. But there was still more work to be done, to be done even after becoming a Christian. Why? Because sin is not only a power, it is a habit. And sometimes we sin not because we are determined to do so, but because we've just repeatedly done so in similar situations. In other words, some situations trigger our brains to tell our bodies to react in the same exact ways that we always reacted when we were non-Christians. For example, have you ever noticed that if you offer critique to a Christian brother or sister and, and they react harshly or defensively against the critique, why? I mean, critique is a good thing. Critique is really a good thing. It's really a helpful thing for people's lives. Well, why the harsh and defensive reaction? They react strongly because there's such an ingrained habit in the situations of critique. Maybe they struggle with shame or whatever it is. But when critique, not criticism, but when critique comes their way, even though they love Jesus, even though their sins are paid for, the habit of being defensive is still hardwired in their soul. Anybody know some brothers and sisters like that? Yeah, yeah. And this is why, in part, we train ourselves to be godly. Training changes the wiring of our soulful, uh, our, our soulful habits and our old struggles. Now, traditionally, for centuries, spiritual disciplines have been the classic means to train ourselves to be godly. And let me just say a few things about the nature of spiritual disciplines so we really are clear about it because if we misunderstand them, they fall off our plate very, very quickly and easily. So I'm going to give you, this is my own working definition of spiritual disciplines, and it's like this. Spiritual disciplines are those spiritual exercises that we engage in to give God space, time, and attentiveness to make us more like Jesus and to create a greater intimacy with him. They are the means by which we participate with God in order to be changed by God. So as I get into some particulars of how we're going to participate with God, everything I want you to know right from the get-go, everything I'm going to lay out here is absolutely predicated on the grace of God. Look, trying to fully cut out sin from our lives with our own wit and wisdom and willpower will only leave us frustrated and dejected like a dry drunk. Transformation is not powering over your weaknesses. It's not powering over your struggles, powering over your sins, but it is yielding. It is yielding to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is openness, not willpower, that provides the opportunity for us to become different kinds of people. So some of the spiritual disciplines that people involve themselves in, I'll have listed up here on the screen, silence, prayer, fasting, Worship, giving, scripture memorization, chastity, simplicity. It's a whole list of stuff that you can incorporate as spiritual disciplines to become different people. 
Now, I also got to make this clear about spiritual disciplines. Okay, notice in my, in my goals for that definition that I gave before, the goal is uh, to make us more like Jesus and to, and to create a greater intimacy with him. And I need to emphasize that because the goal of the spiritual discipline is not simply to do the discipline. Okay, okay you really got to make that understanding. Okay, so, so if we, I can put it this way. The goal of fasting, what's the goal of fasting? The goal of fasting is not simply to go without food but it's to give God space, time, and attentiveness in our day in unique situations where we can be changed by him. Same true with solitude. Solitude, the goal of solitude is not to go without being with people, but to give God a unique way of being attentive to him so we can be changed by him. Make sense? All right, so let me also, I want to make this very, very clear. The act, the act of the discipline by itself does not change you. Fasting, solitude, silence, whatever, does not make you ipso facto like Jesus. Only Jesus can make you like Jesus. Okay? Remember that. For example, you know, I used to live in Asia. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Buddhist monks who have fasted today, and none of them have become more like Jesus. Why? Because the lack of food doesn't make you more like Jesus. Only Jesus makes you more like Jesus. Or to put it another way, in all their fasting they did today, they were not opening up their minds, their hearts, their relationships, their emotional world to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing we've got to remember. What is not open to him will not be transformed by him. I don't care if you fast for 100 days. What is not open to him will not be transformed by him. So, what do fasting and solitude and silence, etc., actually do? Well, what they do is they create the conditions in which change is possible. It's kind of like inducing sleep. You can't make yourself sleep. I'm going to sleep. I know I'm going to sleep. I'm really going to sleep right now. Anybody good at doing that? You can't make yourself sleep, right? Okay? And the same thing with spiritual disciplines, these uh, uh, spiritual disciplines, okay? They help create conditions that make change possible. Just like what we can do about sleep, we can create conditions that make sleep possible, but you can't make yourself sleep. So let me tell you this. I'll go into real specifics now. I'll give you an example how to kind of do this kind of thing without having to shave your head, become a monk, move in a monastery, or, or like add hours to your day. Like I'm, some of you are probably sitting there going, oh, great. As if I don't have enough to do, now I have to do like three hours of fasting, praying, solitude, silence, meditation, Steve, I'm already worn out. Okay? I want to give you something. It's like it's not going to wear you out. That you can do just in the course of your day. First of all, do this. Start with focusing on what needs to change. Start with taking a very long, loving look at the reality of your soul's condition. Take an inventory of your life with a very loving yet strenuous honesty. Honesty doesn't have to be brutal. Don't take a baseball bat to your head. But with a loving and strenuous honesty, what needs to be changed? And maybe to help you figure it out, you know, um, there's different ways you can find out what needs to change. One, talk to your spouse. That tends to help. She'll tell you, or he'll tell you. Talk to your coworker, your kids. You'll, you'll get a list. But if you can't have that, then go to Galatians 5, where this can be a good guide and a tape measure for change. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this list, what do you see? You see things that God is 
always working on to increase in us. So if you choose one of those, you can't go wrong. And by the way, sometimes when you change in one area, it kind of bleeds into and permeates into other areas and helps bring change there as well. So let me give you an example here. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. This is something that God is always working on to produce in me. And so what I did at the beginning of this year is I took an inventory of my life, and I realized I wasn't doing very well in the area of patience. And furthermore, I saw how my lack of patience was causing me to sin. So how do I join with God in order to be changed by God in, this, in regards to this issue without it taking hours and hours and hours of my life? Well, what I finally realized is I had to fast. I have to fast. And I had to fast from impatience. Not food, but impatience. You see, the one thing I'm often impatient about is how slow people move in situations where it's supposed to be quick. You know what I'm saying? Like at the checkout counter, or at the gas pump, or, or like you're online at l l It's the same menu, folks, for 20 years. And you're online for five minutes looking at that menu, and sure enough, the guy in front of you gets up there and goes, uh, let's see, uh, I'm like, oh, 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 come on. How do you not know already? Let me give you a real life example. Very often, when I'm at the checkout line, the person at the front decides to chat it up with the cashier, you know, whom they have, probably haven't seen in a long time. Maybe it's the entire COVID period. They haven't seen each other, so now they're going to catch up on 18 months. So long after the money transaction is made, they continue to have a little chit-chat. Now, not only does my impatient meter start to ratchet up about 10 points, but here's the thing. My judgmentalism, my sin also starts to kick in. On top of that, I start to have ESP. I become, I become ESP. I, I, I can see clearly into each of these people's souls. And I start saying, you see, ah, these women are so inconsiderate of me. They're so selfish. I can't believe they're doing this. There's absolutely no good reason why they have to talk so much to each other. Anyone relate to this? You know? Anyone else have the gift of mind reading? Yeah. But like I said, this year, I was really committed to focus on the issue of impatience. And because I'm, I'm focused on being transformed and becoming more patient, Okay? I give more attention to my impatience meter when it starts to click up. And so now, as it starts, I immediately start praying to God. Okay? I say, Lord, change my heart and slow me down. I don't say, Lord, speed them up. It's not what I pray. I say, Lord, change my heart and slow me down. God, give me your eyes to see these people. Lord, bless these two ladies. Maybe, maybe, Lord, for this woman, it's the only conversation she has had with anybody all week. Maybe, Lord, she is so lonely, so I pray that you would provide other people in her life to love on her and pray for her and to be with her. You see how this goes? So as I'm in those situations, and as I feel the impatience rising, and as the door to sin starts to crack open, I choose instead to move towards prayer. I move towards confession. I move towards repentance. I move towards training. And I look, I don't grit my teeth as I try to be more patient. I simply give God the space 
the time and the attentiveness in that moment online at the checkout counter to change me. And I take an open stance to him and I confess where my heart is really at and I surrender. I surrender my right to move quickly through the checkout line or quickly through the gas pump or whatever it is. Again, I'm not making myself more patient. I'm, I'm surrendering the opportunity to be impatient. I'm surrendering the opportunity to sin and give it to God. And I'm inviting him into the situation and into my soul to change me. Now remember, I don't want a better version of my patience. I want his version of patience with others. And just as importantly, I surrender my way of framing people whom God loves very much. I'm not simply trying to stop judging people because it's against the rules to do so. I am rather seeking to become the kind of person who doesn't need to judge people because I've taken on God's value of other humans. So as you think about the spiritual disciplines you can employ, consider this. If you struggle with gossip, consider the, uh, the, the, the discipline of silence. If you struggle with arrogance, practice unnoticed service. If you struggle with arguing, practice not having the last word in an argument. Practice that. If you, if you struggle with admitting you're wrong, then practice the spiritual discipline of confession. You getting the idea? You guys getting that? All right, one last thing to this, and that will be a very powerful thing to help you cut off uh, these causal issues, and, and, and it's this. Become part of a soul-transforming uh, community. Simply put, we need community to be God's words, to be God's ears, to be God's eyes towards us as we wrestle through these things that, that we want to cut out and cut off. See, if we're going to have a true transformation, then we need to hear divine truth. We need to feel divine love, and we need to experience divine grace. And that is all very, very difficult to experience all by yourself. Furthermore, the communities I speak of are not only full of grace, but they are also communities filled with the commitment to speak and live in the truth. In other words, they need, your community needs to be more committed to your godly transformation than they are to your comfort, to be quite honest. So I'm asking you to be part of a community that sometimes expects and even invites difficult things to be said for the sake of growth and change. You see, a God-centered, kingdom-oriented, grace and truth-speaking community will provide questions you never thought of, encouragement you never felt, insights you never saw, and truth that you may be avoiding. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, verse 15. He said, check this out. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up into him who is the head. We must grow up into Christ. Notice, by the way, real quick, given the local context. He didn't say, we must hint at the truth. We must kind of say it this way, okay? You see, I have to say it in a local situation, because in Jersey, I don't have to say that. Because you go to a small group in Jersey, guess what you're getting? The truth. Not a hint at the truth, you're getting the truth. But here, it's like, you know, people are nice here. And so they're like trying to say the truth. They're hinting at the truth. They're hoping you get their hint, okay? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you guys are laughing uncomfortably here, right? You know? And it's like, 
what if we just speak the truth in love? Okay? Not with a baseball bat, but in love. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Speaking the truth in love does not mean simply using nice words. It means that I love you so much. I love you so much that I want to see you grow in Christ. So I need to bring this up. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that lead to growth? Well, like I said earlier, I love you where you're at, but I love you too much to stay that way. Now, look, if you're in a small group now, maybe this week, get together. I don't know what you were planning, but maybe this week, take some time, take an inventory. Where are you folks really at in terms of grace and truth? Honestly assess if you're holding, if you're holding back truth-seeking and truth-speaking. And In fact, be the first one in your group who invites the hard questions about their lives. Now, if you're not in a group, you can go to our webpage. We have some open groups, small groups there that you can join. We call them life groups. And if that doesn't even work for you, then start your own micro group of maybe two or three other mature and trusted people and make it a central goal. Write it down on paper to commit to it that this group will deal with the truth, not just doctrinal truth from your Bible study, but the sole truth of your sin. So I finish with this, this final exhortation from that writer again, Dallas Willard, when he said this. The people to whom we minister and speak will not recall 99% of what we say to them, but they will never forget the kinds of persons we are. The quality of our souls will indelibly touch others for good or for ill, so we must never forget that the most important thing happening at any moment, even on grocery checkout lines, in the midst of all our other duties, is the kinds of persons we are becoming. How is the quality of your soul today? What is the kind of person you're becoming today? A better horse or a winged creature? What is God saying to you? Now to deal with that question, we're going to do a little, take a little space, time, and attentiveness to God to really listen to him. But just be with that question, what is God saying to you? Because I know he's speaking. I know he wants to move. I know he wants to transform. Will you take an open stance to his spirit right now? You know, before we leave, I want to remind you that the truest thing about you is not all your shortcomings, not all your struggles, it's not all your sins. That's not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is that you are a child of God, loved with an unbreakable love, and given a divine purpose. Nothing can ever take one ounce of truth away from that about your life. However, we can turn our backs on those truths. And maybe God in this moment is calling you to live, at his, live as his child, to experience that unbreakable love, and to recommit yourself to that divine purpose. You know, Jesus says, yes, your sins are many, but my cross, my death, my resurrection takes away all that shame, all that guilt, all the condemnation that goes with those sins. So I, in a second here, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you, if you will finally want to come to that point where you're going to set it right with God, that you're done dabbling at Christianity, you're done being a dilettante about sin, you're ready to commit your life, heart, soul, mind, and strength to him, then I want to lead you in a very brief prayer. But let's just all close our eyes for a second. And again, pray, Lord, thank you for this time to worship, to pray, to hear your word. As strong and as, as tough and challenging as your words are, 
They are words of life. They are words of kindness because you want so much more to happen in and through us, Lord. So we, we surrender. And for those of you who want to give your life to Jesus, just repeat this short prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me for all my sins. Thank you for dying for me. And as best as I know how, I give my life to you. In the powerful, gracious, and merciful name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Now, for those of you who might have prayed that prayer for the first time, if you're in this sanctuary, before you leave, please let me know or someone on the prayer team. We'll have a prayer team outside those, back window, uh, those doors right there if you need prayer after service. If you're at home and you just prayed with us to give your life fully to Jesus, just hit that raise the hand button in the chat area and, and, and we would love for you to meet with a prayer partner right there in, in, in a private chat pane. And we want to celebrate with you. We want to affirm this decision because it's a life-changing decision and we want to help you out as much as we can. All right, so please rise for the final blessing. Receive this blessing. May the God who loves us where we're at and who loves us too much to let us stay that way, may he give you the power, the strength, the courage to look honestly at your life this week and empower you to surrender, empower you to be open to his transforming spirit. And may he use you in the lives of others to be his hands, his arms, his ears, his words to a hurting and struggling world. May you know how mighty the love and grace Jesus is. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be all the glory. And all God's people said, amen. If you're at home, thank you for joining us today. Mahalo for coming. I just want to say aloha, and we hope to see you next week. The Christian life is a continual striving to be holy and become more like Jesus. As you take inventory of your life, what do you find needs to change? If you want to catch up on or re-listen to previous services, you can find past sermons on our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Pres sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. In-person worship continues but in limited capacity. There are two live services at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. If you want to participate, we ask that you sign up through the website on a weekly basis. And both services will be streamed live on the church websites. Once again, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. Please continue to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, registration for in-person worship, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything First Prez can do for you, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.